When I was five or six years old, we moved over into a house which was right next to the farm that my father was running for my grandfather. Uh, our, our house was in Missouri. There was a, a, small, a small yard. Then there was a little two-lane road, not paved at all. It was just, and I say two-lane, that's not true. It was, uh, it was a one-lane road, and it had two tire tracks in it. Just on the other side of that road was a fence that was the start of our farm, which was in Oklahoma. And all our barns and outbuildings were there. Later on in 1946, when the family sold that farm to Ben Harrison, he moved the house that we lived in over onto the farm. That house did have electricity in it, and which was, was a big godsend to our whole family. We did not have running water, but my father put in a pump. Uh, I remember him digging a big hole that he cemented in and then put in a pump and brought that pumped up water from an artesian well that we had down on the farm. The artesian well meant the water ran all the time. That water ran 24 sevens, 365 days a year, and it watered all of our stock on the farm. We had several trough, watering troughs that it it ran into and... and uh, filled up one trough after another so that did give that was for a while my mother did have water she had a kitchen sink and had a faucet no hot water just water you still heated all your hot water on the stove that is mostly I do have some remembrances of the first house but not a whole lot I remember I had a little dog named Skipper that I had to get rid of because he was a little terrier and he was a little bit too wild for the neighborhood and he upset my grandmother's uh, live-in housekeeper one day as she was bringing something over to mother and knocked knocked her down out on our front sidewalk. So I had to get rid of Skipper, which I hated to do. He was so much fun. He used to play with us down at the creek, and I'd throw a ball up on the barn, and he'd catch it coming off the barn and had a lot of fun with him. So, But most of the time I remember at what we called the new house. We had a huge garden. I believe it was probably an acre of land almost. And we planted a huge garden. My mother canned all the time. It, uh, we, we had beef from the farm. We had hogs from the farm. We had chickens from the farm. And we raised all our vegetables. We, we had a some grapevines back in the back of our house that were very good grapes. So that's how we got a lot of our food. At, there were times when we did not own a car in those days. And Tiff City was a town of about a 100 people. It consisted of one general store, one gas station, and a schoolhouse, one church, and that was about it. It uh, it had had other businesses in the past at one time, and it even had a bank. I understand, but that that was before my time. So it was a very small town, and there 
wasn't a whole lot to do there. But it seems like to me I always managed to have a good time. The area was pretty small. My parents used to have a horn. It was a a horn that you could blow that made a loud noise that was made out of a cow's horn. And when we were little kids, when that horn blew, meant you had to come home. Now, if you were not supposed to be out of distance, that that horn could be heard because if you didn't get come home immediately after that horn blew, you were in big trouble. As I we had a dairy farm, and my father and older brother Mike had to get up every morning at five o'clock and milk the cows, and then they had to milk them every night at five o'clock. And that was 365 days a year, seven days a week. And they did not have any help on the farm. There, there was no one to help them do this. And so rain or shine, sleet, freezing rain, hail, snow, freezing weather, weather down to zero degrees, they had to milk those cows every morning and every night. It had to be done. We only had about 12 or 15 cows, but all the milking was done by hand. So they had to go out in the pasture, which sometimes could be quite a ways away, bring the cows into the barn, feed them, milk them, carry the milk up to the road where a milk truck was in, in uh, probably 30-gallon cans, maybe maybe a little bit smaller than that, and uh, carry them up there so that a milk truck that would come by and take them to the creamery every day. Then they had to go down, clean out the barn, maybe clean cows up if the cows were dirty, if their udders were dirty and things like this, get the barn sparkling clean because they had inspectors from the dairies that came by, and if you were not clean and sanitary, they would not buy your milk. And that was our only means of making a living, so that's what you had to do. We also used to have, uh, we would grow our own hay on the farm. We had 120 acres th there on the bottom land and we had 60 acres up on top the hill that we farmed. As I said, my grandmother and grandfather owned that farm. After my grandmother died in 1944, we still went on farming it and Hannah and Zilla and my dad and Uncle Denny all owned the farm. Uh, in the summertime, we would put up hay, we'd have a harvest crew, and it would be quite a deal. I don't know, probably didn't last more than a week or two, but I remember where people didn't, they didn't pack their lunches then to come, and whoever was, you you had, uh, you hired people that came in that uh, were the harvest workers, and my mom would have to feed them at lunchtime. And so she would work all day to prepare a big meal for the harvest hands as they always had a pretty big appetite as they they worked real hard and and I can remember that it was uh, it was a very hard life if you can just imagine now <laughs> seven days a week three hundred and sixty five days a year twice a day those cows had to be milked 
my brother was going to high school I figured out that he probably he probably started when he was about 12 or 13 years old and until he was 18 that's what he did every day of his life twice a day and that's what my dad did every day of his life twice a day and it sure wasn't any easier on my mother or on my sister now as I was only 10 years old when we left there, I missed out on a lot of that work. And I want to tell you, my brother and sister were always, in the years afterward, were always quick to point that out to me, that I had missed out on a lot of that work. But that's, that's uh, we'll, we'll cover some more of that in a little bit here. We used to have a lot of fun, though, on the days that it rained or or for some reason my dad couldn't work on the farm we'd we'd uh we'd play cards i learned how to play cards at a very young age and we we played poker we played hearts we played casino we probably i don't remember that we had any board games at some point in time we might have had a monopoly game but uh i don't know that we did but we, it seems like we we did play a lot of cards the the heat in our house in both of our houses that we lived in was uh was a pot-bellied stove and that that was the heat for the winter time uh your bath was to take a bath in a wash tub and let me tell you in the winter time any room in that house was pretty cold except the the main sitting room which which had the pot-bellied stove in it my brother and sister used to play a lot of jokes on me. We had an old factory in the town that was was not had not been used for years, but I think it was about a three-story factory. And they started working this on me sometime in advance, and they told me why the factory had been closed down, is there was a machine up on the second floor, and this machine had been running one day, and some guy caught his arm in it, and the machine pulled him right on end, and the machine swallowed up his whole body, and they'd never been able to get the body out, and he was still inside there. Well, you know me, I was about five years old, and I wanted to see that machine, so I talked them into getting, taking me up there to show me that machine that had that guy's body in it. And, of course, this is just what they had in mind. They had set me up pretty good. A lot of the stairs were missing, so my older brother, they were both big enough they could jump over the stairs that were missing, but I wasn't. So my brother carried me up there. They got me upstairs, and we were up there looking around, and it was all very hush-hush and very quiet, and nobody was making a sound, and all of a sudden, one of them yelled, There's his arm coming out of the machine! And they took off running. Well, I couldn't get over the stairs. So I don't know how long they left me up there, but they, they left me there for a while. And then they used to take me snipe hunting where I'd go out on the edge of the woods and hold a sack where they would uh, herd the snipes into me. But when after they'd leave me out in the edge of the woods in the dark where they'd go on home, and I don't know what they'd tell my parents how they got away with that, but uh, but they did until I'd get tired of waiting and then I'd come on home too and they'd have a good laugh out of that. Then also remember when, of course, we didn't have any street lights in Tiff City, but on Halloween, why my sister and I would go trick or treating, 
And my brother would always save firecrackers from the 4th of July, and he would hide at places. Now, when there's no street lights, that town would be so dark, you could not see a thing. And my brother would hide in places and then throw out a firecracker behind us, and that, that was a little scary, too. Now, you have to keep in mind that things were a little bit scarier there than, than they might even be in some other places because at the time that I lived there in that part of the country, especially after dark, you never went up to anybody's door and knocked on the door. You stood out away from the front of the house and called out to them. You called, hello, the house. You identified yourself, who you were, and what your business was. And people were known to have been shot through their doors if, uh, if, if, uh, through the front door, if they came up and knocked on somebody's door. It was, it was kind of a wild and rough area. And they, uh, well, it was just a rough area. I, I will have to tell one story that is a story that a friend of mine called me from back there. In around 1975-1976, we left there in 1946, so that would have uh, been, I guess, 30 years later. He told me that the people in that area were till, still talking about this story, and that was when when my brother and I were smaller, we were smaller. Each one of us, when we went in the Army, gained some size. When I went in the Army, I was 5'10 and weighed 155 pounds. Nine, week, nine weeks later, when I got out of basic training, I was 6'1 and weighed 180. Well, my brother was about had about the same circumstances happen to him. When we went to elementary school back there, there was a lot of a lot of times we would have kids going to school with us that were three, four, five years older than us in the same grade we were in for different reasons because their parents had kept them out to work or, or just many different reasons. The elementary school was very small. It was first through eighth grade, no kindergarten, and there were usually 15 to 20 students in all eight grades. My brother had had this kid that had been four years older than him that picked on him all the way through school. My brother wore glasses, and of course that back in those days was a real stigma, and he got picked on a lot. When my brother got out of basic training in 1945, and I remember this because we had been, my family had been to uh, the big city of Joplin, which was about 30 miles away, and we'd gone shopping that day. My brother was home on leave from the Army, and I didn't know what was going on, I guess, because I guess when we drove back into Tiff City and drove by the general store, my brother saw this guy that used to pick on him sitting out talking to some other men in front of the general store. Now, my brother would have been 18 at the time, and this guy would have been 22, 23. And uh, my dad told me later that he'd 
did know what was going on. So my brother changed his clothes real quick, got into some old clothes, walked over to the store. My dad followed very closely behind him. I didn't come over until a minute or two later when all the fun had started by the time I got there. But I guess what happened, my brother walked over in front of the guy and asked him, he says, you remember when you used to bully me when we were in school? And the guy says, yeah, why? And my brother asked him, how'd you like to try to do it now? And the guy jumped up with a big grin on his face and says, you bet I would. And my brother about beat him halfway to death. They had quite a fight, and they they had quite a fight. I remember my dad calling out to my brother, Mike, he's got a knife. Well, he had gotten in his pocket and gotten a pocket knife out, but he never got it open. And the last I remember of the picture, this guy had a car there. And he had gotten in his car. He had finally dragged himself up. He had gotten in his car. He couldn't close the door. He was bleeding so badly. And he leaned out the side of the door and was driving away from the store. Well, this is a story that my friend who called me 30 years later from back there said that that country still talked about that fight that my brother had been in. And that's that's kind of the way the country was there. My brother, besides milking the cows and working on the farm all the time, had a fish bait business. And he sold soft-shell crawdads and minnows. The minnows you'd catch in a minnow jar, uh, like we have them here at the house. It's not the ones my brother used, unfortunately. I'd love to have that. But you'd put soda crackers in them, put them down in the creek, and the minnows would come in one end and they couldn't get back out. He'd transfer them then to like a 30-gallon lard can that you would sit in the creek, weighted down with rocks inside, So, and in a part of the creek where the water was not moving, it'd be a real slow part of the creek, bury it down in three-quarters of the way, and that lard can would have holes punched in the side from the inside so that the minnows wouldn't be scratched. And then you kept a lid on it, and you could keep several dozen minnows in that that lard can and you dipped them out with a little net now one time when my brother wasn't there why my my sister some guys came up to our place and wanted to buy some minnows so my sister was going to get them for him and she went down and when she started to get in the lard can she noticed that the lid was slightly off but she didn't think anything about it and without looking she just dumped dipped the little uh, net down in to grab the minnows and she came out instead of minnows she came out with a water moxin and it about scared the life out of her but that was not too unfamiliar in those days my brother also caught soft-shelled crawdads now to catch them you had to get them after dark along the edge of the riverbank they would be out slightly from the edge maybe oh probably usually in three to four to six eight inches of water so my brother you had to walk out in the water to catch them though because otherwise if you tried to catch them from the riverbank they would scoot out to the deeper water and you couldn't get them so my brother would walk out in water anywhere from six inches to 24 inches deep Like I said, this had to be after dark. He had a carbide light on his head, which 
showed a little bit of light. This is kind of like the lights you've seen the miners wear in old movies. Well, that was a carbide light and would light his way. And he said several times when he's been out there doing that, he's had cottonmouth water moxins swim between his legs. Now, cottonmouth water moxins are very, very poisonous. Regular water moxins aren't, but and he had many times he had regular water moxins swim between his legs, and that can be very scary too. So it it was a very tough life. My brother, like I said, milked the cows twice a day. So <laughs> caught his fish bait at night, sold it, had to go to school every day, five days a week, and it... Uh, it it was kind of a tough life. Our dairy cattle were were registered Guernseys. So one time to improve the herd, my dad bought a, a registered Guernsey bull. He was I don't know how old he was at the time, maybe three years old or so. But I remember one thing about him: he was big and he was very mean. My dad could not even walk in a pasture with him. I can't remember how they unloaded him. I don't. I don't really remember that, but I do know that we ended up putting him in a in a pasture that we had that was up behind the barn that was enclosed with probably a four board fence, and we put a we put an electric wire around the inside of it so that he wouldn't uh, he wouldn't try to get out. Now the first time he touched that electric wire with his nose, he he about went berserk. He took a couple of the couple of the fence posts out and a little bit of the wire, and then ran. Luckily, ran back in toward the toward the the pasture so that my dad could get the fence fixed with him inside. We didn't have to chase him down. He was always a problem until we got this dog, and I believe the dog's name was Pup. The bull's name was Paul. I believe the dog's name was Pup. He was an Australian Shepherd, and he was already a trained cattle dog. You could actually send him out to, if you had no gates closed or anything, he could go out to a pasture maybe 60, 80 acres away, and if you had 15 cows out in that pasture and you told Pup to go get the cows, and this would maybe be a half mile away, Pup would go out and round those cows up and bring them into the barn. He was really good. So my dad decided to see how Pup was with the bull. Pup minded very well, so I walked with my dad up to the bull's pasture. Pup was with us. He had Pup sit down outside the fence, and my dad climbed the fence and jumped over in the pasture. Here came Paul coming after my dad. So my dad jumped back over the fence, or he may not have jumped back over the fence. He may have just called Pup out there. And when Pup went out there, the bull stopped and took a look at him and snorted a couple of times and started slowly walking toward Pup and my dad. When he did that, Pup went after the bull. When Pup went after him and he was barking some, the bull turned around and started running. Well, Pup kept after him, nipping at his heels until he got him going probably as fast as the bull could run. Then he ran around to the front of the bull real quick, 
jumped up, grabbed hold of the bull's nose with his teeth, and just sat down, and he flipped that bull end over end. Well, that was all the lesson that the bull needed, because after that, any time that my dad wanted to go out in the pasture, he just took pup with him. Having the cows and having them so close and having so few of them was a lot of fun. A couple of them turned into real pets. I remember we had one. For some reason, my dad would name a lot of the cows after the months of the year. And I remember we had this cow named April. And she got to be such a pet that any time we were out in the pen or the pasture where April was, she would follow us just like a dog would follow you around. So we had a lot of fun with them. We, I can remember as a little kid having a lot of fun with the barn. In the barn, the chickens would get up in the barn and they'd lay eggs and nobody found the eggs so the eggs would get rotten so I'd get up in the barn and hide from my brother when he came down to do his work and I'd throw rotten eggs at him and I would get in trouble for that and it was probably less trouble with my parents than it would have been with my brother when he caught up with me. During all this time, my sister Marianne, of course, helped my mom with all her chores. And I I sometimes think that country was harder on the women than it was on the men, although it it was very hard on both of them. The, The work was very hard, and there wasn't a lot to do. We had a, I do remember at Tiff City, in the summertime, A couple of summers, anyway, we had a movie theater would come to town on Saturday nights, and they would put up a tent, put out folding chairs, and they'd show a movie, and you could go to see it for a dime. But I would work for them, help them put up the tent, mostly just set out the chairs, and for doing that, I'd get in free. So that that was a great experience for me. Now, it would make a good story here if I could say that the school that Mike and Marianne and I went to there in Tiff City was this one-room schoolhouse. But, you know, it wasn't. It was probably a room and a quarter. We did have the one room, which was our classroom. And then we had a little room off of that, which had a table and probably four or five chairs, and I think maybe 30 or 40 books in it that we called our library. And it I think had some maps in it and things like that that we could use to show off where different parts of the world was for our geography lessons. But uh, Mike and Marianne and I all went to school there. I went to school there through when I started the sixth grade and then when we'd, we moved to Lindsay, California in 1946. Uh, the kids back then started to work a lot earlier and you you took on responsibilities you had different things in that schoolhouse our only source of heat was a pot-bellied stove our only source of air conditioning was to open the windows it was my job through the fifth grade and I know, and and of course this hadn't happened yet in the sixth grade, but in the fifth grade when I would have been nine years old, it was my job to go up to the schoolhouse every morning before the teacher went, before any of the other kids went, and to start that fire in that pot-bellied stove so the school would be somewhat warm before everybody got there. Now that wasn't that tough a job. 
the summer before we came to California, I helped putting up the hay. I drove a team of horses pulling a hay rake and raked all the hay for the for to be taken to the hay baler so it could be baled and then I helped a lot with bucking the hay which means carrying the bales around I for me I think I was mostly dragging them around but uh, getting them away from the hay baler and getting them stacked so that they could be taken in a wagon into the barn so I, I worked for a while doing that when when I was 10 years old. My best friend was named B.F. Paulin, Benjamin Franklin Paulin. His dad was Lloyd Paulin, and Lloyd Paulin had a, uh, he, he had a farm of his own, but he also hired out to, he had a lot of good farm equipment, so he would hire out to bale hay. He used to come bale hay for us. We didn't have our own hay baler. And he also plowed people's fields for him. When B.F. was 10 years old, he was working, plowing 20 and 40 acres for other people. So that's the kind of thing you started doing, and you started doing it real early. And uh, you, you, you had to do it well, and, and that's just kind of the way life was. And, you know, with all that and everything, we always managed to have a good time. The families would get together. I I had a lot of relatives back there. I had a lot of cousins. We didn't get together real often, but I think several times a year. One of the times that I remember was really fun was we we had a big fish fry. And we I remember this was relatives on my mom's side of the family. And they had opened up Grand Lake by then, which was about four or five miles south of us, which is now a big a big resort area back there, Grand Lake of the Cherokees, and it's also a wonderful fishing lake. And my dad and I went down, I think we went down the night before, and we fished mostly all night. And then the next day... We we my dad had made a fire pit of some kind to be able to fry, to be able to fry these fish somehow. But I remember it was a pretty pretty big setup he made, but it was all kind of a homemade deal, and I guess to hold various frying pans and things like that because there were a lot of people there, and the fish we caught was was what the main ingredients of what we ate, and that was a lot of fun. But we'd do things like that and. We went to Buffalo Creek a lot and swam in Buffalo Creek. It, like I said, it was about 200 yards from our house. We had what was known as the Blue Hole, right? And that was where the creek had uh, sort of made a, had a deep spot in it because a lot of the creek wasn't that deep or anything. But this this place was seven or eight feet deep and uh, for a pretty good sized area, it'd be like a swimming pool now. And but it was a good place for us to swim but you also could catch fish out of there especially at night one of the customs back in that part of the country was for when little kids you especially the boys i never heard this happening with the girls but if you were a little boy 
you were expected to learn how to swim because you were there were always areas you were close to creeks or rivers and you better know how to swim because you might fall in and you'd drown so one of the things was a big custom that the if you were down by a creek or something the older boys would throw you in and you better learn how to swim right then and a lot of them learned how to swim that way when in if you'll notice in my earlier speaking here why my dad had a younger brother Jethro and Jethro died when he was about 12 years old but when when Jethro was about I don't know six seven eight years old my dad was at the river with him and some other boys and the other boys threw Jethro in and Jethro couldn't swim and he Jethro was always I think sick he was not a well young man and he uh, he couldn't get out and so my dad jumped in and saved him and pulled him out uh, it was that's kind of the way they did things there and that was just an accepted method of of the way things happened. I'd like to go back to my friend B.F. Paulin for a minute. B.F. was a good practical joker. In this little uh, one and a quarter room schoolhouse that we went to, we had uh, outside restrooms. They were a couple of hundred feet from the school. And we had a good sized playground. And on that playground, we had teeter-totters, and we may have had some swings, and we had one of those little types of merry-go-rounds. There were no animals or anything like that on it. It was just one of those things you ran around pushing it and then jumped on, and it kept going for a while. And I remember we had one of those. But we used to have a lot of fun playing out there, and it was a little bit rocky. You got a lot of bumps and bruises from it. And one day at our noon lunch break, we were playing with a couple of horseshoes and these were real horseshoes off real horses and we were throwing them around now we did have some some type of electricity going to that school maybe we had electric lights because i remember we had an electric wire going to it and somebody threw a horseshoe and it hung up on the electric wire well, it, it scared the teacher. She didn't really know what to do. So she sent BF down to the, to the gas station in town where we knew that the man who owned the gas station had a ladder tall enough to reach up there and get that off there. So here comes BF back in just a few minutes, and he said, Mr. Ledford said to get everybody out of the schoolhouse, not let anybody get close to the schoolhouse because it's the schoolhouse is liable to catch on fire and burn down. And so keep everybody out of the schoolhouse because by that time lunch lunch was over and we were back inside when BF came out. So the teacher real hurriedly got us got us back outside and BF said the guy would be up there with his ladder just as soon as he had time to get there. Well, it took quite a while. It may have taken an hour or two. And so we were all outside playing and when the guy came up and first thing he did was ask the teacher, well, how come you got all these kids outside? And she said, well, that's what you said to do. He said, I never said any such thing. Well, B.F. had had his fun, and B.F. got in a lot of trouble over that. About a year after 
we left Tiff City and we're in Lindsay, we got word that BF had died in a polio epidemic. So I had lost my best friend back there in Missouri, BF Paulin. I'm going to take a little break here and I will come back though and stop and, and I think it's about time that we move on to Lindsay, California. So I'm going to stop for here. My mother used to take the milk from the farm, separate the cream in a cream separator, and then churn the cream to make butter. She would then mold the butter and keep it cool for our use. She also used the cream to put on peach or berry cobbler, which she had made, and this was the very best. If you've never had fresh-made cream on berry cobbler, you've really missed out on something. She also used to make sauerkraut and cottage cheese. They were, it was quite a process to make them, and I used to help her with them, but I really don't remember the process. She also used to can all the things from our garden. I, I believe I mentioned earlier that we have a, had a very large garden. She would can all the vegetables from that, like beans and peas and carrots and potatoes. And the potatoes I'm not sure about. I added that, and I could be a little bit wrong there. But she would also buy fruit and can that also. So between that and the meat we got from the farm and the eggs we got from the farm, it gave us some pretty good food to eat. My grandfather died in 1939. My grandmother died in 1944. My brother went in the Army in 1945. And then in 1946, my father had a heart attack. We, uh, we decided that he could no longer work the farm because in those days if you had a bad heart you weren't supposed to do anything it was quite different than it is now so we decided that we would move to Lindsay California because that was where a man by the name of Ira Harrison lived and he was from Tiff City his brother bought our farm from us we had an auction. We sold off everything we had, all the cattle, all the machinery. The only thing we had left were just a few personal household things, a very small trailer, and a 1939 Buick. So for the first time in 105 years, no Burns would be living in very close proximity to Buffalo Creek. We would all be gone. Our trip to Lindsay, California was sort of uneventful. We, uh, it was in the month of September, later on in the month, and I can remember coming into Lindsay and thinking it was the driest, brownest, hottest place I had ever seen. We first stayed in the Lindsay Hotel and stayed there for a little while until we were able to buy a house which we did at 605 North Elmwood in Lindsay. My mother went to work at the Lindsay Hospital first as a nurse's aide then as a licensed vocational nurse and then finally she went to work in the office where she continued to work there I guess it would have been until about the first part of 1956 she she ran their office and uh, 
until she moved to San Francisco when I got transferred to Germany. My father wasn't able to do any work. We thought that maybe, I think, my mother and he thought that in California we might be able to find something that he was able to do, but as it turned out, there just wasn't that much to do. My brother Mike got out of the Army in 1947. When he was in the Army, he had started pitching baseball some. And so when he got out, he he had been a pretty good pitcher, so he did pitch pro baseball for a while. And I know played for a couple of different teams, played in the same league with Mickey Mantle, the Kansas-Oklahoma-Missouri League, or better known as the KOM League. He also worked in the oil fields some. He decided to give up his baseball career when he decided that if he ever did make it to the major leagues, why, it would be too many years, and he didn't want to wait that long. He was working in the oil fields, he told me, and kept, and it, as you can imagine, it was very dirty work. He kept seeing these guys coming out with their suits and ties on, and he asked some of the other guys, who are these guys that are coming out here? And he was told by the other workers that they were engineers. He decided at that time that he was going to become a, an engineer. So he went back to college, started back at COS, and started on his path to become a mechanical engineer, where in 1953 he graduated from the University of California with a mechanical engineer degree. In the meantime, he had married Carol Norman, and after, after he graduated from college, they uh, moved to Hawaii, where he got a job for Dole Pineapple. And in December of 1953, they had their one and only child, Ellen, who has grown up to be a very nice young woman now and is my only niece on my side of the family. Mary Ann went to Lindsay High School, and then she went to work in Visalia Caskey Paper Company. She must have done a very good job because it wasn't oh, probably a year or a little bit more that she became manager of the whole company. It was not a large company, but did have five or six employees. And so she was quite pleased with that. But Visalia wasn't a big enough city for her, and so she wanted to move on. And so she later moved to San Francisco, and where she later married Jack Ahern. And they bought a house down in Boulder Creek, California, and a very beautiful place on a stream down in Boulder Creek, and they traveled back and forth between their jobs in San Francisco and there. They unfortunately did not have any children. When I got to Lindsay, I started school there in the sixth grade. School had already started, but it wasn't too far along. When I was about 11, I got a job as a uh, delivering the Fresno Bee Sunday mornings, and then it was delivered in the afternoon the rest of the week. In the summers and Christmas vacations, I picked fruit, etc., worked on farms, chopping cotton, doing various jobs 
my later years in high school, some of the times I was uh, working, I picked a lot of tomatoes. Had a lot of uh, had a lot of nice memories of working for the Aishidas, which were a very nice Japanese family. There were two or three brothers, and they eventually started a packing house, a tomato packing house in Lindsay, where I eventually worked there also. When I was about 15, I started working at the Lindsay Gazette after school on Saturdays. That was our newspaper. I was very fortunate that the owners of the Gazette liked sports really well, and they supported the sports at Lindsay High School. So I got to uh, go ahead and practice and play sports after school, and then I could go ahead and do my work down at the Gazette after everyone had left for the night. When I was a sophomore and had just turned 15 years old, my father died. My father was a very kind man and a very strong man. And I I missed him very much. I've missed him all my life. Many times I think back and wish that I had my father to talk to. I played a lot of basketball and a little football in high school. And in my senior year, I was the captain of the basketball after a year and a half at junior college at College of Sequoias I went into the army for two years in the first eight weeks of basic training at Fort Ord, California in nine weeks there I went from being 5'10 and weighing 155 pounds to 6'1 and weighing 180 I guess the food must have agreed with me I don't remember it as being very good, but something must have happened. The same thing had happened to my brother, really, when he went into the Army. He had grown a lot right away. In the second eight weeks of school, I went to Flash Ranger or Forward Observer School in Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and I finished first in our class of 120-plus men. Went back to Fort Ord for a few months and then to Germany for the final 14 months of being in the Army. I was on a troop ship going to Germany, and I believe our trip took about eight days. I got sick a little bit the first day out, but was fine from then on. When I came home from Germany, it was also on a troop ship, And it was such a wonderful feeling to come into the harbor in New York and see the Statue of Liberty. And then I remember there were two or three bands playing for us as the ship docked. It was so good to be back in our country again. Back to school at COS for one semester and then went to work in construction, which became my life work. I started as a laborer and then became a carpenter and specialized in installing acoustical ceilings. I wanted a family so bad and in 1958 married Margaret Probst. In 1959, September 26th, my first child, Joanne, was born in San Luis Obispo where I was working at the time. What a blessing! Then came Kelly on October 6th of 1960, and I felt wonderful again about it. John was born April 9th, 1964, and I thought this was just great. 
each one of them so special in their own way. It was so fun being a part of their growing up. I did leave out a point that in 1959 we had moved to Fresno. Now, I installed acoustical ceilings and some chipboard until early 1971. Around 1966, I left construction and sold life insurance a year. And that was not a real good thing. I've never been a very good salesman, and it sure showed as I was not able to sell very much life insurance. But it was a different experience in my life, and uh, one that I'm sure taught me many good lessons. So then it was back to construction, and then in late 1970, I saw that the people in construction seemed to always be finished by the time they were 50 years old or so. So I bought a 25-acre ranch with vines and fruit trees. Then in January 1971, I was offered a position in the office for Dinar Shore, where I was working. I became their field superintendent and was enjoying it quite a bit. The company was having quite a bit of problems, and I thought that I could go a long way towards straightening some of them out. After about six months, I decided this was the type of work that I wanted to pursue, and so I sold the ranch. After about another year, I became general manager, part owner, and changed the name of the companies to Interior Contractors, or INCON. At that time, the company was doing about six hundred to eight hundred thousand a year. Their biggest year ever had been eight hundred thousand dollars. In nineteen seventy-eight, when I left the company, we were doing six million. In December nineteen seventy-eight, I started Mark D. Burns Inc. and continued this company until nineteen. 97 with a short layoff in the 1986-1987 era. In October 1979, I married Barbara and she became my lifelong friend and companion. Our business would not have been the same without her leadership and wisdom, not to mention her hard work. In the late 90s, we brought John in as a partner, and his leadership role played a vital importance in our company from that time on. We had so many valuable employees that they are too numerous to mention. Without them, we could have not accomplished the achievement or success that we did. It, uh, it seems kind of unfair not to mention them by name because just had so many good men working out in the field and so many good women working in the office. We we had two rules and two rules only. We had to enjoy what we were doing and we had to make money. And it uh, we kind of found that if you were doing that first one, why the second one came along behind it. Some of our projects included the Tentacle Office Building in Bakersfield and many other projects in Bakersfield. In Fresno, we did all phases of the Kaiser Hospital, many large schools in Clovis, 
and Fresno, and many large shopping centers, office buildings, and Gottschalk stores in California. We did the Napa Valley Hospital and other large projects in Northern California. In 1984, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior and started on my road to knowing God and His Word. I am still on, on this way and will be the rest of my days on this earth. In 1984, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior and started on my road to knowing God and His Word. I am still on that wonderful road and will be the rest of my days on this earth. On 11-1-1985, my son Luke was born and God blessed my life again as he had the previous three times. What a special blessing my children have been to me. I think of each one of you with such loving thoughts, and quite often my mind goes to the past and thinks about some special time we had together. I think of all the games we have played, all the trips to the lake, trips to the coast, trips all over the country, the special times we have had when we've gathered together for special occasions like Christmas Eve or that we've just gathered together to get together. I cherish each minute that I have gotten to share with each one of you and want you to know that I am so proud of the accomplishments that each of you has achieved. I pray that each of you will follow God, follow your heart, and that we may share many more good times together. I'm going to finish with a few thoughts about Barbara. Nothing is perfect in this world, and Barbara and I have had our down times. But anyone has these, so they're not even worth really mentioning, and I don't really dwell on them. Barbara has shared all my ups and downs for the past 30 years, and I would not have known that two peoples could be so close together. We enjoy so much the same things. Loving God, loving family, wanting to serve, wanting to see the world, and not least of all, loving each other. Thank you for your encouragement when I am weak your understanding and your compassion when I fail, and your continuing love through it all. Thank you all for hearing all this. I would like to give credit and thanks to my cousin Susan Brackage from Coffeyville, Kansas, who is a descendant of Emma Burns Parham, John and Martha Caroline's daughter. Susan has provided a lot of the good information that I've uh, had the opportunity to to see from the early days, especially from William and Martha's children. So thanks again, Susan, for all the information and all the encouragement. I would like to make a couple of additions here. Uh, the first couple are going to be changes because I 
first said that the May Cemetery was three miles west of Tiff City, and it's actually three miles east of Tiff City. My Aunt Zilla, I originally said she was born in 1881, and it should be in 1891. And I think I said my mother, Emily Victoria, at one time, and it should have been my grandmother, Emily Victoria. There are a couple more stories I would like to relate here. Uh, we were right on the Missouri-Oklahoma border. Oklahoma was a dry state, which meant there was no alcohol sold there. So a lot of people used to come across the border. There, there were said to be a lot of outlaws hiding out over in Oklahoma, as there was not a lot of law there. For any of you who have seen that movie, Bonnie and Clyde, and if you remember the shootout, in Joplin, Missouri at the motel where they killed a couple of law enforcement officers and they they had some of their people got killed. Supposedly when they made their getaway over into Oklahoma they came right through Tiff City, stopped at the gas station and got gas at that time. My Uncle Grover used to tell the story that I think I mentioned that he and Aunt Zilla didn't have any children. But when we were little kids, he used to tell us that he did have two kids, two boys named Dynamite and Powder River. But they were so mean, he had to keep them locked up in an upstairs room. And the funny thing about it was, he would take us upstairs in their house and show us the room they were in and locked up. And he would always whisper and tell us to be real quiet so that we didn't disturb them. There's also quite a story on my mother's side of my family, which my dad's cousin Aiden did have a part in also. And this would have been back somewhere around the turn of the century, probably between 1900 and 1910. My grandfather Davidson had five older sisters, and they all lived in Neosho, Missouri. I guess as the girls were dating, one of them had a pretty steady boyfriend, and maybe he wasn't quite the right kind of a guy, because he was coming to visit her one Sunday afternoon, and he was very drunk, I guess. Her older sister, my mother's Aunt Johnny, met him at the front door, since her parents weren't home, and told him that he would not be allowed to see her little sister. Well, he told her he was going to come in and see her anyway. My Aunt Johnny shot and killed him right on their front steps. They were a very strong Catholic family, and my Aunt Johnny disappeared for about a year. They said that she was in a convent somewhere. Finally, when I guess they had everything together, why they Aunt Johnny came back to town and there was a trial for her. They did try her for murder and she was acquitted. One of the main witnesses for her was my father's cousin Aiden who got on the stand and testified that he had seen the man that she shot and killed walking to their house that Sunday afternoon and that he appeared to be very drunk. When my dad was a young man and as I've mentioned several times, we lived very close to Indian territory. There was a 
festival out in Oklahoma called the Green Corn Feast. Now, they still were having this festival when I was a little kid, and I went there also. And this was put on by the Indians, and it was the harvest time of the year. Once when my father was very young, he was uh, out at the Green Corn Feast, and one of the Indians scalped a man there. My father put him in his car, took him back into Tiff City, and the doctor there sewed his scalp back on. Another story that uh, some people have liked to hear about a little bit is when I was a little kid, about seven or eight years old, and I had seen my older brother and some of his friends build these boats and they would build them out of corrugated metal, and you could actually ride in them. So I decided one day I was going to build myself a boat. And I got the corrugated metal, I got the wood, and I did all the bending and nailing and heated tar up and caulked all the joints with it. And I, my mother came out and... I told her I was going to take it down to the creek and try it out as soon as I got done. And she told me, Mark, she says, you have to wait till your dad gets through work on the farm so he can take you down to the creek. Now, I should have done what my mother told me to do, but I was just too anxious to get down there and see if my boat would work or not. Well, I couldn't go in and get my bathing suit because then my mother would know. So I headed for the creek took all my clothes off and got in my boat naked and I was out paddling around the blue hole as I have explained earlier a little bit about and I looked up and there was my mother on the bank with a switch in her hand and telling me okay Mark come on ashore and I did and let me tell you with no clothes on that switch sure hurts One last story I think that I will tell. One Sunday we went out for a ride and we had gone over and picked up my mother's sister, Alice, and her three children. We went by this farm where they had a sign that said horses for sale. Well, we, my dad decided to stop and that day he bought about four or five horses. Now, I know my dad had had horses before, and he really loved horses. And But I guess because of our circumstances, he hadn't had any for quite a while. And so, he, like I said, he bought about four or five horses, and one of them was a little Shetland pony that I used to ride. He had bought a big buckskin stallion for him to ride. The little... Shetland Pony was kind of mean and she would bite me or just about anything she could do to uh, to be mean to me. I was about eight years old at the time, maybe nine. One day as I was starting to get off of her, I wasn't too far from our house and I slipped and fell and when I did, my foot caught in the stirrup. And when she saw that I was down on the ground and I did not have hold of the reins, which was a bad thing to do, and she started slowly walking toward the barn at first, and then she started trotting. Well, my dad had probably been a 100 yards away or so on his horse, and he saw this, and he came running very hard and fast and stopped and caught 
cut that little pony because had she kept on very much longer and started going any faster, she would have been kicking me in the head and it would have killed me. So my dad very definitely saved my life that day. Well, once again, I'm going to call this the end of things. Hopefully this time I really do stop.